It hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm Carrie. I'm Isaac. Mad about young adult fiction. I know, I know. Well, and you sent me another. You sent me another another tweet. I can't remember what even what it was. And you're like, "Why is that it again?" It's like, dude, this this is the reality. We cannot go there. This is this is this is a no go zone. We can because I, I I can't get canceled by YA people. I have no problem with the with the conservative progressive Christian crowd, but the YA people, I do not want them coming for me. So anyway, how about we introduce our guests? <laughs> Yes, well, I just can't be a, I can't become a Marx for them. So, <laughs> well, the YA crowd is really intense. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh boy. And a lot yeah. of them are my friends, uh, who, right. I, who I love and respect. I would never say a, a kind word about any of them. Please don't add me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, they, but- they will go in on you. And, and for the most part, it is awesome because they are the stuff that they care about is highly progressive and they want to make YA the safe space, but sometimes they lose their shit. So putting it out there. Anyway. Okay. I'm glad we're starting the pod with what's going to get us ultimately canceled. <laughs> Just me. Um, <laughs> you all will be fine. <laughs> the one way in which we hope not to be canceled. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, You've already heard her voice. <laughs> We're joined today by uh, Amy Peterson, who is a IRL friend of the pod. Amy, do you want to introduce yourself? No, I want you to introduce me. Uh, <laughs> Power move. <laughs> Amy is a, a writer, a seminary student, a quilter, a master podcast maker, and playlist maker. <laughs> See, I just wanted to know what you would say. And those are such great qualities. I don't think most people would know to put quilter in my bio, but it obviously belongs there. Obviously. Well, it's our, one of our many crossovers, but possibly That's the one true. I'm most proud of. Because I think you've surpassed me in quilt making ability, even though you've only been making quilts for like six months. I don't think so. I think I'm just very good at following instructions. <laughs> okay. But uh, Amy, so you had a book come out uh, right before the pandemic. Yeah. So I want to talk about your book. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about your book, but I also am interested in like uh, how that process was considering it. It dropped in January, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the book came out in January. I, I did get to have like a big fun book release party um, at our mutual friend, Lauren Winner's house. And mm-hmm. had like 50 or 60 people come. It was delightful. And then I saw you the next month, Carrie, when you came down here. And that was the last, when you came down here, Valentine's weekend, I think that was the last social engagement I had <laughs> in 2020. Because <laughs> then the pandemic it's very uh, so weird to I be able to pinpoint the exact last time I'm, I've ever been on an airplane. Yeah, yeah. I've been looking for a way to blame the uh, pandemic on lesbians, so I'm glad we're already there this early in the pot. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Now that's an interesting conclusion to draw, but... I'm no longer you know, worried about the YA audience now. Now I, everybody just comes <laughs> to Isaac. Now it's fine. We can talk all we want about the YA audience. <laughs> And we should say the name uh, of the book too. We have you didn't oh, say Oh, the name of the book. The book is called Where Goodness Still Grows: Reclaiming Virtue in an Age of Hypocrisy. And every single speaking engagement that I had lined up for this book got canceled due to the pandemic. So that was fun. Did you experience that too, Brian? No, I was going to say, including the one that I thought you thought I had set up at my church, but I forgot oh, well, about. <laughs> so yeah, sorry. That <laughs> was like that, my. Actually, it was almost my final social thing because I did fly to Minneapolis 
oh, it's like March 18th or something, like really right before the shutdown. And I, I was speaking at a different church in Minneapolis and, you know, I called them a few days before and said, don't you think maybe we should not do this? Maybe I should do it over Zoom. And they're like, no, it's fine. We're going to do it. And then I got there and literally like six hours after I got there, they said, actually, we're not going to do this. Oh, really? So, yeah. So that got canceled and I just flew back home early, but all that to say, you know, I've had some great podcast experiences with my book coming out, but it's different than being able to speak in person. And I have missed that, especially I was going to be speaking at a literary festival in Arkansas, in Little Rock, Arkansas, which is where I'm from. And I was really excited about that one. So I said that, that got canceled. But yeah, that's kind of what it's been like releasing a book in a pandemic. Anticlimactic, I guess. It's even more... That said, I'm saying it's in Go it's, buy this book. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's also, it's strangely the perfect book to come out right before a pandemic because in, uh, I think it's the title of your introduction maybe, but it's about virtues for the apocalypse. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, the, ver- the book was originally titled, like I sold the book titled as Virtues for the Apocalypse, but my publisher thought that um, that title would give people the wrong idea as to what it was about. And I was like, no, People use the apocalypse in all kinds of ways now. It's fine. But then one of my best friends told me that when I told her my book was called Virtues for the Apocalypse, she thought it was about the book of Revelation. So mm-hmm. maybe my publisher was right. Anyway. I've uh, converted some of the left behind folks who are now QAnon fans. <laughs> <laughs> right? See, maybe it would have stopped some of that if they had just titled it Virtues for the Apocalypse. Golly. Yeah, I mean, has anyone figured out how to stop any of that? <laughs> Just ignore it. <laughs> uh. Wait, are we talking about QAnon or the apocalypse or or the the pandemic? I I, I missed it. What are we ignoring? Oh, let the apocalypse come. Okay. I'm all yeah. for that. But yeah, like, act, let the actively, QAnon die. Actively growing impatient, waiting on the apocalypse here. <laughs> Absolutely. <Tennessee>, so. <laughs> yes. Isaac is ready for the second coming. <laughs> I mean, well, I've been well. listening to so much Sufjan that it's just like coming out of my pores. Yeah. <laughs> the ascension. Well, I, I think, and the other thing I think that's kind of a bummer about your book coming, the, the pandemic happening in this, it's all, it's also, I think, a perfect book leading up to what we thought the election would look like and some of the um, conversations that would be happening in, in religious circles. And so when I read it, and then kind of now that we're thinking about this, it was just like, that's a huge loss. I mean, I, I had that with my own book, which we don't have to talk about, but it's like, you know, it's like one of those things where it, it feels even more like sometimes publishing, I think, feels pointless in general. It's like it comes out and it's like, oh, well, that was nice. Maybe I get to go to a yeah. festival of faith and writing this year, but maybe right. not. <laughs> um, but when but when you have a book where it's just like, oh, this is tailor made for, for November 2020, it, it's just I, I assume it's even more of a bummer not to kind of lift that up. But it's like it's the perfect <laughs> book. But I think it's a perfect book outside of the pandemic for kind of what the conversation was leading to um, in religious circles. So. Yeah, well, I definitely hoped that this book would seem less relevant post-election than it did pre-election. And I don't think it does at all. Its relevance seems to continue. Uh, So this book was born kind of out of experiences leading up to the 2016 election. And in particular, watching conservative evangelicals who I had grown up with who um, 
So growing up in Little Rock in the 90s was when Bill Clinton was had just um, um, gone to the White House. And then when everything happened with Monica Lewinsky, you know, all the conservative evangelicals I knew were talking about the importance of character and virtue. We um, in Little Rock, somebody made bumper stickers that said, speak up for decency. And you, you could not <laughs> like go to Hobby Lobby without seeing cars in the parking lot with their <laughs> speak up for decency <laughs> bumper stickers. On there. <laughs> that is a classic reference right there. Perfect. <laughs> wow. Um, everything about that cultural moment has changed meaning in so many ways. In so many ways. It's perfect. <laughs> oh, and then so in 2015, 2016, seeing these same conservative evangelicals like throw their uh, considerable weight behind a man who had no morals, character, or virtue to speak of was really eye-opening for me. And, you know, apocalypse actually means revelation. It means like an unveiling. And so seeing that was, I think, an unveiling for me of what some of the evangelicalism I had grown up in was and what was missing from it. And that was what prompted me to start writing this book. So actually I had, someone had asked me to write a an essay on any topic for the alumni magazine at the Christian college where I was working. And I chose to write about hospitality and the refugee crisis. And so I wrote my little essay, I turned it in, and then I got a call from the editor and he said, we're going to need to edit out the word refugee. And I was like, well, <laughs> that's kind of what it's about. And he said, refugee is just too political right now. Mm-hmm. And when they told me that the word refugee was too political for me to talk about it in relation to Christian hospitality... In that moment, was that was one of many moments in 2016, I think, where I was like, I'm so done with this. And at that time, I was in the MFA program that Carrie's currently in and Brian teaches in. Graduated. Yes. And, and vaguely. <laughs> Graduated from. You're not still in that. <laughs> now for your seventh year in a row. <laughs> you go to grad school, you never stop going. That's how it's been for me. <laughs> and then you get on Twitter. <laughs> which is its own graduate school. Yeah. Anyway, so I was in that program. And after I had this very frustrating experience with the essay on hospitality, I decided that I wanted to write a longer version of that essay and say all the things that I wished I could say. So I did let them make some of the edits for the alumni magazine. Not all of them though, but I wanted to write like the real version. So I did that for one of my MFA assignments. And then I kind of thought, Maybe I want to write a whole series of these where I take these words that Christians are using in the wrong way or reductively and reimagine them and write more expansively about them. And that's sort of how this book came to be. Yeah, it's awesome. So were you already kind of in the Episcopal Church as you transitioned out of kind of the church and the faith of your childhood? I know you were working at uh, that university, uh, but I don't know if we should name it. Anyone um, who wants to find out what it is can do it with like two minutes okay. of internet. Yeah. Season, just, but we don't need to name it. Yeah, I didn't, wanna, I didn't want to do that. Uh, so you were already kind of in that. This wasn't the moment that kind of transitioned you out of it. No, I'd been in the Episcopal Church since 2010. So... Uh, for, for a pretty long while. And before that, I lived on the West Coast. And before that, I lived overseas and was in an Anglican church in Cambodia for a year. So so I'd been more distant from conservative evangelicalism every year for quite a long time. Cool. Um, yeah. And what you said about, uh, well, I've read the book 
multiple times. <laughs> so I love it. And in the book, you, uh, you definitely take hospitality. You also take like lament, you take different virtues and you call it re- reclaiming. But I think uh, a good bridge maybe for this podcast is like last week, Isaac talked about positive theology because um, he was trying to make, uh, I guess, like positive claims about God versus like just deconstructing evangelical uh, or ex-evangelical claims, uh, which is a place I think people on Twitter can get stuck. <laughs> which So anyway, that's something I really appreciate about your book is that it does make, um, it's kind of like building a new moral, um, a new moral theology, which is what Lauren calls it in the introduction. But you've gotten some pushback on your book, uh, <laughs> specifically about lament. And I was interested in the kind of pushback you received around lament. It's been fascinating to me that so many people have told me um, that they think the chapter on lament in this book is the most controversial chapter. So like there's a chapter on purity where I deconstruct the sexual ethics of purity culture, right? And there's a chapter on modesty where I talk a lot about totally redefining modesty. Uh, There's hospitality in the refugees. Like there's a chapter on love where I basically say the whole way we were taught to do evangelism was wrong. And let's rethink that. But what people think is the most controversial is that I said, there are some things we should lament. I mean, it just doesn't seem like a controversial claim, right? But that is where people get the most tripped up. And I think that that is pretty telling about what we are willing to discuss and face and admit in the church in America right now. You know, in the in the week after President <clears throat> in, the, in the week after the 2016 election, that's about <laughs> as much as I can say. Uh, a pastor who I follow on Twitter tweeted, this is the day that the Lord has made to do anything other than rejoice and be glad in it is rebellion against God. Ooh. And <laughs> Isaac, thoughts? Ordained pastor? <laughs> uh, yeah, resident making, pastor. making me think of that uh, John Piper post where he was like, if you don't enjoy your life, God is going to get really pissed off at you. <laughs> <laughs> and You know, that was really painful for me because I was lamenting a lot right then. But I think it's a a pretty typical attitude in a lot of American churches to skip right past any kind of lament towards joy, thanksgiving, positivity, optimistic, um, hope. And I've even heard pastors say that lament is an Old Testament virtue and not a new, we're, we're New Testament people, they say. And so we don't lament which I probably don't need to explain why that's ridiculous. <laughs> do <laughs> but you want me to? Oh, I'd like I to do. Hear it, yes. Yeah, I'd like to hear it. <laughs> well, let's just begin with the shortest verse in the Bible. Yes. Jesus wept. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? So if Jesus can weep, we can too. Um, yeah, but we have the whole book of Lamentations. We have all these Psalms of lament. There's all kinds of examples of lament in the Bible. And I think that if we skip over lament, we are not finding our way to a true hope because you have to lament what is wrong in order to begin to change it. And part of what makes that difficult is that we all lament different things. And I think that's also part of the invitation when in the New Testament, it says to weep with those who weep and, and rejoice with those who rejoice. It's, that's an invitation for us to like 
find some places of commonality and empathy, even with people who are weeping about different things than we're weeping about. I think in that st- statement, though, we probably should edit out weeping and rejoicing just so we don't get the wrong uh, the wrong uh, sense of what the Christian message is. So, <laughs> Vibing and uh, big sad. <laughs> Vibing and big sad. <laughs> Oh, no. Vibe with us, vibe. <laughs> this, this might be the earliest time in the podcast where I'm officially done. I'm broken now. I can't. I can't go on. Vibing and big set is that's the subtitle. <laughs> that's the Vibing and big set. Oh God, Amy, you said that people push back on lamenting stuff, but are there specific things? And I'm the person on the pod who has not read your book. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm shutting up. But oh, I'm done. Um, Bye. <laughs> Are there uh, are there specific things that you talk about lamenting that people push back on? Like why why is it that you want to lament this? And I'd be curious to hear what they are. The only thing that I've ever had conservative evangelicals invite me to lament with them is either my personal sin, mm-hmm. like repent of your personal sin, that's a kind of lament, or the national sin of abortion. Right. Those are the two things conservative evangelicals have allowed me to lament. In the book, I talk about lamenting in the wake of Ferguson, in the wake of seeing these oil spills in the Bahamas, um, in, in all kinds of situations. I haven't had anybody like particularly push back on that. Like, no, you can't lament Ferguson. They just say, we shouldn't be lamenting. Mm. Like, we just need to move on to hope. Mm. lamenting they say is like a sign of not having faith when Mm. to me not lamenting is a sign of not having faith because if you're not lamenting you're basically saying i'm good with this status quo i don't need anything else lamenting is like a demonstration that we need god that we need some rescue right um so if you're not lamenting then you're a little too satisfied can go back to my missionary days (laughs) <laughs> and quote some Amy Carmichael, who said, um, <laughs> this is another thing Carrie and I have in common. Amy Carmichael said something about, verily the lust for comfort murders the passion of the soul. Evangelicals are very comfortable, you know? And so they don't feel any passion to change things or ask or to ask God to change things. And I, I don't like to talk about evangelicals or conservative evangelicals with the broad brush that I'm currently using to talk because um, there's a lot of wonderful people there and people I still respect. So let me just add that caveat. Do you think- I think it's an interesting thing to consider, you know, to kind of pull on some of these threads because I, you know, I, I pastored in several different contexts that I would characterize as like probably in line with the target audience for your critique. And the funny thing to me is that they typically see many of them are experiencing a lot of really intense social injustice. You know, either they have like loved ones or who are incarcerated or they've been incarcerated themselves. They struggle with addiction. Many, many, many people in those contexts have experienced sexual violence, domestic abuse. And I, I think that it's, you know, and when they express pain to me about this, I think they often express it in a way that makes them afraid that God doesn't really care about it. And uh, I'm wondering if, you know, what your perspective on it, 
on what is taking their attention away from those things when they can think about like, oh, abortion is something we need to lament, but not the like domestic violence in our community. Like wh- where, how are they like sort of squaring the the mental calculus of, of settling themselves into that spiritual position? That's a really interesting question. I don't know that I have a very thoughtful answer about it. I think part of it probably comes from a lack of, uh, no offense, good spiritual formation in our churches, right? And people who are allowing themselves to be as formed and discipled by Fox News or Facebook feeds as anything else. And so if that's your your primary way of understanding sort of who you are and what is worth mourning, then um, then you're going to come out just thinking only a few things are things that we can lament. And these other things, no one's talking about them on Facebook or Fox News. And so we probably just need to skip over them. I don't know. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Carrie, Carrie, Brian, do you guys have thoughts on that? Very good question. I think, I mean, I think you hit on something really important with the formation aspect of it. And I think that there is a, a, a need for the church to take formation more seriously for that reason, especially for adults where it typically kind of fizzles out. And, you know, as long as they're writing checks every, every week or whatever, it, it's fine. We don't need them to do that. But I think like having that kind of vibrant uh, formation uh, aspect of it is going to counter that because there's only so far you can get into the Bible, in my opinion, before you are going to start having some kind of disruption <laughs> with some of those outside narratives. So Carrie, what do you think? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think I agree with the formation aspect. I also think uh, it's kind of part of, like I, it's part of Christianity's melding with American culture. Like I don't think that Americans as a whole are good at lament or good at uh, like, I mean, confronting death, which is part of lamenting. And, and so when there's no like, a public way for a community to lament then like Christians in that community should be the ones leading leading people and how to and how to both like both lament and have hope and to hold those two things together but I don't think that American Christianity has like had a robust <laughs> a robust practice of calling out evil and lamenting evil in decades I mean really maybe. I mean, ever. I mean, I think that's like the root of the entire problem our nation is having right now is that we never collectively lamented and tried to repair our original sins of like stealing from indigenous people and enslaving African people. And you get, yeah. And, and I think, I think it's important to call out too, is not, this is not just like broad brush evangelical conservative, like progressives have a really, really bad, are really bad at doing this as well. There's a lot of screaming a lot of times, but I think the lamentation doesn't necessarily come through as much. And I think that there's something with what we're seeing now post a Joe Biden uh, win with calls for unity, where a lot of the same stuff is happening, where we're skipping over these, these crucial steps that might get us to unity. But like all of a sudden it's like, well, you just have to forget everything because now we have our chance to be unified and to be comfortable, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Well, self-righteousness will stop you from lamenting anytime. And Lord knows we liberals have a lot of self-righteousness. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think on some level, there's there's also a power dynamic too that, that won't allow that conversation to really take root. You know, like if, if Joe Biden came forward and said, okay, we're going to do a thorough investigation and public trial into the border crisis. Well, 
then you're undoing the entire relationship of American American foreign policy, right? The, the institution would have to undo itself mm-hmm. in order to sort of thoroughly withstand and go through that kind of critique and discovery. Uh, and it can't do that. It won't, it's, not, it's not just that it can't do that. It won't do it because it doesn't want to, because it would be its own sort of destruction. I, I've been thinking a lot about this, this nature as well in the, in, you know, the rural church or even in, you know, the urban church that the same thing with these people who don't see God as caring about the violence that they've suffered or the abuse that they've suffered. It's because if their churches were forming them to do that, then the sort of patriarchal power structure within them would have to be confronted and undone. Right. And so, you know, most of the time, I I think that um, we can, you know, I I think it's a a good point that that you made, Amy, about how like the media forms, but also, you know, just to point out that these things are the way they are intentionally. So, I, I, you know, you could talk about something that liberals love as a great counterexample to step on their toes a little bit like Hamilton. The whole purpose of Hamilton is to form a new generation of woke young people to get on board with the founding fathers narrative. That's what it is. The point of that musical is to make you love America more. And if you need, you know, African-Americans to do that, if you want to see George Washington as an African-American instead, then we'll give it to you. Just as long as at the end of the musical, you're ready to like re-up for the rest of your life in another generation of the American imperial project. I mean, Hamilton literally is the movie Get Out. It is white people living inside of black bodies. It's just uh, that is exactly the manifestation of the movie Get Out, which were praised in the exact same year by the exact same group of cultural people, not realizing that like one is cutting against and exposing the other. Anyway, there's my hot take for the day. But I think that, you know, that when we're talking about virtue, I think, and, and especially hypocrisy, I think one of the difficult things about it is that. You know, hypocrisy when it comes to power structures seems to me like, like you know, people have been calling out the hypocrisy of the Trump administration for four years and never really seemed to make any impact. So I, I, I think the power dynamic here is a, a big something I struggle with when talking about virtue as, um, as something that can like create change in communities. I just want to lift up Isaac's ability to make me feel bad about things that I like, which I, I, I am on board with everything, but I, I had never thought of Hamilton in that way. And now it's ruined for me. So there you go. Oh. <laughs> Not really. I mean, I, I think that I think you're right on Isaac. I had never thought of it in that in that particular way. So thank you. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's, all right. it's your sp- unique sp- uh, spiritual gift. <laughs> no. <laughs> Isaac has an existential crisis like every podcast. Isaac has an existential crisis of like am I an asshole? And, <laughs> and it's I just every, every time. And then I can't help myself by lifting it up even though I don't think Isaac is an asshole. I just I can't help myself. I'm sorry. So No, y'all, it's it's not even limited to podcasting. It happens every sermon. Natalie, my my uh Blessed wife is just like constantly navigating my existential crises throughout the week. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I definitely feel what you're saying about the relationship of virtue and power and questioning whether sort of virtue is the answer. Maybe the answer is more in like 
deconstructing our power structures, right? But that's in this book, which you have not read. <laughs> I do. Um, I do specifically say that my intent in this book is not to create a new set of definitive virtues or what's right and wrong, but um, but rather to sort of help us cultivate the tools that we need to build wisdom in our lives. And a, a lot of what I do in sort of deconstructing these virtues is note the ways in which they have been used as oppressive tools by the powerful. And hopefully what, what I'm doing with them is opening them up so that they're not tools used to oppress, but tools used to nurture or garden or, you know, take our weapons and beat them into plowshares, that sort of thing. Mm. You know who does that, don't you? You mean literally? Yeah. Carrie, do, do you know who does, you know that, who does that, Carrie? <laughs> so, is it, does Shankly Warren literally beat guns? He's literally, he literally yeah. makes them into a garden oh things. Yeah. So oh I my God. felt like it wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't bring up Shane Claiborne. So, well, so far, we've got Sufjan and Shane Claiborne. Let's see what else <laughs> we, we need to, to bring up. We have to hit something. <laughs> <laughs> we got Isaac's uh, existential crisis. So we're, we're right on track. 30 minutes in. Perfect. Right on time. I'm eventually going to say something that outs me as being way too old for this podcast. So that that's coming up. And fight corners yet to come. Oh, right? yes, yes. Yeah. A surprise fight corner. <laughs> no, I can't wait. Amy, I, can I, Carrie, do you have a question? Because I have one that I'd love to ask Amy. What's it like to write a book about theology and the church and Christianity and then go to div school? Do you feel <laughs> like... Um, I mean, do you bring it up in uh, in as often uh, as I can? Yeah, <laughs> yes, I mean, I in every class conversation. Hundred percent, I would. Yes. In the book that I wrote and published, <laughs> as a published author, I would like to say, uh, what is today's assigned reading? <laughs> right. Well, the book came out one semester into my divinity school career, so I had been a student for one semester, and then the book came out, and I did not mention it, but some. Other students in my class found out and announced it to the whole class. So now, now yes, everyone knows. But it's here's the thing. This is my third master's degree. I'm about to turn 40 and I have two kids and this is my second book. And so there were already like 17 things that made me a weird divinity school student. So having a book come out was just cherry on the top. <laughs> I just try to. I'm Duke Div alum, and I'm just trying to imagine imagine you and precepts being like, well, you know, in my book, I really delved into this. <laughs> just like, I'm sure you would never do that, but I do sometimes times, quote myself in classes, <laughs> but without saying that I'm quoting myself. I so love, I'll just, I love I, it. I have deeply thought about this, so I'll just give the answer that I wrote in my book without telling them that it's the answer I wrote in my book. <laughs> Why do the extra work? You've already you've already done it. I think I probably have actually copied and pasted paragraphs from my book into papers for well, divinity you, just, you should just take it then and do some marketing with it. And so like when it comes up, just bring the book out and open it up and read it from that perspective <laughs> and then just close the book and put it away. It's just perfect. Yeah. That's Sign a way to really, what, make friends and influence people? Yes, in one way or another. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, something I recently learned is that a court has actually ruled that you, you can't plagiarize yourself oh uh, and because credence 
Credence Clearwater Revival uh, <laughs> basically signed a really bad contract with their managers and then like made a hit song and then the band broke up and then John Fogarty really wanted the royalties from their hit song and the managers were like, no. So then he just wrote a different song with the exact same tune and it also became a hit and then his manager sued him and the court had to be like, he didn't plagiarize anything because it was his, like he wrote it himself. So he's, you can't plagiarize yourself legally. So you're not saying that what I did was illegal. You're saying what I did was legal. legal. I'm saying it wasn't plagiarism. It wasn't so. plagiarism. Okay. It was perfectly ethically or in the clear. Well, and I like that so th- Jane's office. Yeah. <laughs> I think though that I think that I, I don't have to worry now about making a boomer reference since Carrie just brought up Creedence Clearwater <laughs> revival uh, <laughs> on the pod. My brother, I learned all this favorite the of all the, the kids. Car. Yeah. I learned all this. Yeah, though, Brian, you're Gen X, right? Yeah, I'm like 43. So just to put it out there, not a boomer. No, 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 not for you. I'm just saying previous. Sorry, I just got, I got triggered there for a second. Sorry, Amy. (laughs) That's surreal. Okay, boomer. Brian's having a moment. I learned all this because I was, I spent a lot of time in the car with my brother on Saturday and he, he looked all this up to prove a years old argument with like a teacher that he doesn't talk to, like that he's had no contact with, but he just thought about it and was like, I need to win this. <laughs> if that tells you anything about the culture of our family. <laughs> Those are some long-standing grudges, huh? <laughs> Gonna try to stay on your good side. Gosh, <laughs> what I've just learned. That's Alex has longer standing grudges than I do. I only I have mine are weird and generally related to bloggers that I don't like. Um <laughs> Amy, has there has there been any question that you've like been really you've really wanted to answer in an interview? Like you've just been itching to answer about your book, but no one's brought it up on the podcast. <laughs> um, no, I don't carry questions around like longstanding grudges. Here, okay, it's <laughs> <laughs> a good question though. Well, I have a question. Well, so, your soul is a greater piece than mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what questions do you want people to ask you, Isaac? <laughs> Oh God! Started a podcast. I don't, we we don't have enough room on the on the uh, on the memory card here, so we might have to split this one up. Go, no, Brian. <laughs> no, I, I just think there's an interesting, you know, as somebody who came into Div School, right, and uh, I know is in the uh, discernment ordination process. Like, how do you see those things working together? Like writing and kind of some kind of ministry work or ordinate ordained ministry work? Because this is kind of a niche niche uh, niche question, but. It's interesting when I see people who are kind of like me doing that same path. So maybe this is just for me so I can answer right. that question. But how do you see those things playing together? Do you see them kind of working together? Do they draw from the same well? Do they compete with one another? Are you a postulant now? Officially a postulant, yeah. You're officially a postulant. Yes, Congratulations. I yeah, yeah. Made it in just um, enough. And unless they ever hear this podcast, and then I think I will be immediately kicked out. But hopefully not. Not this one. This is the one I'm going li- to let them listen to. The other ones be like, don't worry about those. They're not good. Well, you know, like nearly every priest I've spoken to in the last few months has expressed being so exhausted after the work of priesting during the pandemic that they're about ready to resign. So I think there'll be plenty of jobs for us. (laughs) There's that at least. Um, Uh, Isaac, are you exhausted from the pandemic? Oh, yeah. Oh, Yeah. yeah. I think that... I think that these two things of writing and priestly work will work together really well. I think that, so my, my gifting is in uh, teaching and writing and hospitality. And by hospitality, I mean creating a space um, where people can enter and feel free to be who they are. And I think that those 
kind of extend to both. I mean, I hope that my writing is hospitable and that it invites people to uh, to come in without without um, sort of beating them over the head or trying to coerce them into agreement, right? But that it sort of creates a welcoming open space. And I mean, teaching and writing, like writing sermons, I think that it'll all go well together. The part that's been interesting for me to think about is actually coming from this like very intense and long uh, years of experience in the evangelical world and then entering into ministry in the Episcopal world, which is pretty different. And my writing up to now has been pretty aimed towards the evangelical world. And so that's the part that I, I don't know if I've quite figured out yet. I mean, this book was kind of a goodbye to the evangelical world in some ways. So I know that I'm not writing for them anymore, but I don't know if I'm writing for a more sort of mainland audience or if I'm writing for a wider audience, not just a religious audience next. Um, That's part of the thing I'm thinking about. And I do kind of think that it may use up the same energies, like writing sermons and writing books. It comes from the same place within me. And so it may be that I have less uh, energy for writing once I'm priesting. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I had Do you a have thoughts about how it's going to work for you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had a kid just recently, just to kind of bring this back to the uh, plagiarism. I, I preached a couple of weeks ago and I, I lifted Thank something. God. What? Wait, what? So you say God went back to plagiarism. Oh. <laughs> Go ahead. This is... Listen, I'm just trying to keep the content fresh here with what the kids want. But anyway, a kid called me out because I lifted something from one of my books and put it into a sermon. That's all I was going to say. And he emailed me. He's like, I read your book and you said that in your book. I was like, yeah. He's like, did you quote it? I was like, yeah, that's what I was doing. <laughs> I, it's, not oh this, it's not that I didn't have unoriginal <laughs> theological opinions on this topic. Uh, that's what it was. I was quoting myself. What a narc. I know. Wow. <laughs> yeah, there it is. He, he was not trying to be a narc. He is like the nicest kid ever. But he was, he was more generally interested. Like, I caught that because I read your book. And I was like, oh, thanks, kid. I'm not going to name on the sweet. podcast. Yes, yeah, super sweet. Yeah. But I think it's like, it's one of those things that you, you end up falling into this, not to not to get into a topic that bores anybody, but I think it falls into this general well, right? Like this general well of like, where you're kind of constantly thinking about theology and how you can talk about it and express it and articulate it for other people. And when you kind of yeah. bring it into like a uh, parish or a church setting, suddenly you have people that can read your work and you can have interactions, which could be good or bad, but you can have, there's, there's more of right. an opportunity for kind of like transformation in those moments than just sending it out there and having to yell at people on Twitter because they don't think we should be lamenting. Yeah. I have wondered, like, are are people, like, are future church committees going to read my application and then go look at my books? And then is that going to change how they feel about me? But Lauren says that it's flattering yourself to think that people are going to pay any attention to your books. <laughs> so. That's so funny. She, we, she and I had almost the exact same conversation and she was like, no, don't worry about that at all. Your books won't See? matter. Your, your books won't matter. It's like, thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Right? Also incredibly rich coming from Lauren. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Amy, I do want to I, I do want to bring us back to one thing you said because I I think it's important and and something I kind of wrestle with as well. Uh, and it's in it's interesting in the context of virtue is that when we're thinking about as podcasters or pastors or Christians in general how we speak to the larger culture, I think it's been I think it's a little harder than 
than we imagine because it's easy to get back to kind of harping on the evangelicalism and the fundamentalist stuff that is invasive in the culture. But there's a, a much larger portion of American culture who just finds the church completely irrelevant, right? Like doesn't even, it's like that meme from Mad Men where it's like, I feel sorry for you. And it's like, I, Don Draper's like, I don't think about you at all. Like that's, <laughs> like that's most of America's relationship to the church. And I think that, you know, one of the things about the church that I feel is I wish we were more scripturally literate and, and more well-versed in our own sort of theology and the ways we feel. But on some level, does that make us, does that make it even more difficult for us to kind of pierce the bubble that, that we're in, sort of all talking to ourselves and, and reach out of it? So I, I guess I'm interested in your perspective on what exactly in your writing or just in maybe in good examples of it that you've seen should the church be saying to the larger culture in the country? Because I feel like it's it's either like a lot of sort of uh, self-flagellation and, and contrition, which needs to happen and is good in some places and sort of performative than others, or it's something that people don't really care about. So I, yeah, this is a, this is a tough one. That's a really good question. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think that the answer is for... Actually, I don't think that like increasing biblical literacy and getting better at talking about the Bible and our story and our convictions is a problem. I, I hear what you're saying about that, like maybe insulating us in some way, but I actually think the better we get at talking about that, um, the better we can get at living in a way that is meaningful. <laughs> and so the better we're able to articulate the truths of the Bible to ourselves, the better we're able to preach the gospel to ourselves, I think the more likely we will be to engage in meaningful work in the world. And so I don't really think we need to be communicating some message to the world. I guess podcast listeners can't see the quotation marks I just put on the world, but they were there. I think, so for me, um, I grew up thinking that the best way to love our neighbors was to evangelize them, right? To share the four spiritual laws and then you could save them from heaven. And what could be more loving than that? Saving them from heaven? Oh, the podcast just corrupts you as soon as you get here. <laughs> I'm canceled. Oh, yeah. I'm going to go. <laughs> Saving them from hell. I guess maybe I said that because, well, that's a whole nother topic. Anyway. <laughs> I also want to save them from evangelical heaven, which most yes. people think is like golfing eternally. <laughs> and, and maybe hell isn't a thing that I think that people need to be saved from so much in the way that I might have once thought that people needed to be saved from hell. Anyway, <laughs> that was a complicated sentence. What I want to say is that approaching, like thinking that loving your neighbors meant like sharing the four spiritual laws with them left me thinking like my neighbors were um, just like items to check off my list, right? Uh, I could only sort of approach them with that sort of objective, like this is my goal with this person is to evangelize them, which is just not human. So I've come to believe that loving my neighbors begins with curiosity about them, with asking them questions and really being curious, not asking them questions in the hopes that I can then tell them what I think, right? That loving my neighbors is sort of like 
motherhood. I mean, motherhood begins in vulnerability and continues in vulnerability. Motherhood means feeling like your heart is walking around outside of your body every day for the rest of your life, I think. And so there's a real kind of vulnerability and sacrifice to love that I think parenthood has helped me see. And that's just nothing like the love that's like, I know what's right and you don't, and I'm going to communicate it to you. So I don't think, I don't think, um, I think very much about what do I need to communicate to the world? I think more about communicating the gospel to myself every day um, and hoping that that leads me to be more curious and open and vulnerable to the people I interact with on a day-to-day basis. It's like, why are you doing this? Like, why is this important to you? Why are you showing up? Not every Sunday usually, but why are you showing up every week? Like, that's the stuff that I want the people, like, especially the kids that I work with, to be able to articulate that. It might be that your parents are making you do it, but there's probably something deeper than that. And maybe you grow into it, but like, that's the kind of stuff that I don't think a lot of, and I'll speak from an Episcopalian standpoint, like, they have a, we have a really hard time doing that. It's like, well, I like the music. And it's like, okay, that's that's fine. That's a starting place. But being able to articulate why and how it's changed you is is super important. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, I think that's I think that's definitely all right. I think that I think though to to kind of complicate it a little when it comes to the question of media, right? Like a podcast or a book that you're going to write, like you know, on some level, it's predicated on this notion of like I have something to say. And and if we're talking about like changing audiences away from the kind of Exangelical world to a broader one. What exactly do we have to say to people who have like nothing really, and and as far as a relationship to the church that that they that we want to offer up there? I think that that's like yeah, practice, practice, practice within the church community. But you know, everyone on this pod is in some way offering up their voice out into the media world. I think that it's, it gets to be a more complicated question there. Yeah. Maybe I want to um, I want to invite people to take their own lives more seriously than they do. Mm. <laughs> okay. But before we transition to the fight corner, <laughs> I want to plug another book that I just recently read that I really enjoyed. It's one of Amy's friend's <laughs> books. Yes. So. so there's the connection. That's all so, we need. Go for it. Yeah. But uh but I think it speaks to that. The book speaks yeah. to your question a little bit, which is "Blessed Are the Nuns" by Stina Kielsmeyer okay. Cook, um, because the author, the author's husband, uh, left Christianity completely. Um, like I, I don't think he ever IDs in the book as like fully atheist or agnostic, but or like he goes back and forth. But anyway, I just read the book, and it's a really interesting. And I think speaks in some way to your questions, Isaac, about like what the church mm. can mean to the world beyond people who are actively like interested in faith or in like the daily rhythms of church. And personally, I really enjoyed it because like the most important person in my life is an atheist and really deeply uh, uninterested in church. Uh, and that's like, I mean, he's he's still the most important person in my life. So like, Navigating that means that I still talk about church stuff to him and he just has to listen (laughs) because uh, that's just how it works. Uh, But the book goes into um, a lot of the kind of like the push and pull of that relationship. Anyway, so just a quick plug. That's a perfect answer to that question, actually. That's a really good thought, Gary. Yeah, and she's great. A shout out to another uh, Twin Cities writer. Yeah. Yeah, and one thing I love in that book is 
um, Stina's husband, Josh, who deconverted, you know, goes along with her in some of these conversations she has with, um, with nuns, with women who uh, have a religious vocation. And he has some really fascinating conversations with the nuns and that feel like a model to me for what it means to be a deeply religious person in just regular conversation with non-religious people. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's a good book. Yeah, great. Yeah, that was fight a time corner. for Fight Corner. <laughs> I feel like we need to engage the world with violence. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, in this Fight Corner, sponsored by Chili's, uh, this falls into the broader category of people who are like weirdly familiar to you on Twitter despite not knowing you. But in the fight corner specifically is this one priest from the upper Midwest who took my joke about the Eucharist extremely seriously. Because <laughs> if we want to talk about longstanding grudges, this is one of them for me. How long ago was, did this happen on Twitter? See, this was in a recent uh, was, tweet. I mean, it was, it was not a recent tweet, but I've been thinking about it in quarantine. <laughs> And this is my way of releasing it to the world so that I can get it out. <laughs> but I do think, uh, just etiquette-wise, stop being weirdly over-familiar to strangers online. Yeah. Like, if I don't know you, we don't follow each other, we have no mutual followers, maybe just move along. Like, you don't have to say everything about, like, your correct theological opinion. And joke's on you, bitch. I was serious. Everyone's getting communion. <laughs> Babies are getting communion. Anyone who wants it. Open table, bitch. I don't want to fucking hear it. Yeah, this oh. is why sometimes being on Twitter does make me reconsider whether I'm called to the priesthood because oh. Oh, Anglicans on Twitter can be so annoying. Yeah, it's why are you coming in my mentions and insisting on having the last word on something that uh, while I believe is very important, is also to get evangelical on you, secondary to the gospel. <laughs> well, part of it too is because I, I, I mean, as I, again, as I've kind of gotten more into uh, weird Anglican Twitter, as they call it, or whatever, um, on the periphery. But they, there's a a striking, uh, a shocking realization that there's not a lot of discernment outside of liturgy sometimes uh, in that in that crowd, and it's like. And that makes me wonder about what how priests are formed, but that's a whole nother podcast. Uh, but yeah, they 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 take these weird stands, which like if you just even thought it's like this, these do not match up to anything else that you say that you believe. But for some reason, you're you're gonna die on this hill for some reason. And like open communion is, and it's like they're not even doing it to save themselves because in case their bishop is watching, and so they won't be brought up on like would it be like canon four or something, whatever it is, not canon four. Uh, but they four. Would, yeah, they would be brought up on something. They're doing it because it's like. I have no idea why they're doing it. Like, who would deny? Because the, the immediate caveat, this, is this my fight corner? Because it, the immediate caveat <laughs> that they come to then is like, well, I'm going to give bread to anybody that puts their hand out. It's like, then why the hell are you arguing about this with some random person that you don't even know? <laughs> yes. And you know what? If you want to talk about communion in the Bible, right. let's get into it. <laughs> I am, this, is my, this is my thing. I have been, I love it. I have been thinking about it since I was like 19 years old. And you know what? Nowhere in the Bible does it say don't give the body and blood of Jesus Christ to people who want it anyway. So this is maybe awesome. I'm a little bit, am I a biblical literist now? Uh -oh. Is that what, have I just, have I rounded the corner from? <laughs> you just ascended. I don't know. I'm, we're going to have to bring Melissa back on to remind you of Paul saying that uh, people can 
eat and drink their own damnation <laughs> because that's <laughs> she you know on episode two she made a pretty good uh pretty good argument for not having open communion so that people won't die at the altar because they uh literally like torturing people during the week and getting communion on Sunday. That's biblical literalism, according to (laughs) MFB shout out friend of the pod. I will say in in the spirit of not being biblical literalist, (laughs) but I think that I go back and forth on this issue, but like in seriousness, I do, I do wonder about the logistics of like denying people communion when just because you have a vague sense that they're not baptized or even, you know, they're not baptized, but they want to come to church. Everyone chill the fuck out. And in closing for the fight corner, <laughs> you're not my dad. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, I like that you had your closing remarks prepared. <laughs> I, I like that, they, that they're, you're not my dad. I like that that's your closing remarks. <laughs> but actually, I think, this, I think this fight corner connects pretty directly to Isaac's question about like, what do we have to say to the world? Because what are we saying on Twitter? Right. Like the people who are choosing to present their priestly identity on Twitter as like deeply committed to these like weird niche issues. Why? I, and who is it helping? I feel that very deeply. <laughs> and as, a, okay. as someone who hasn't gone to divinity school and like has a degree in religious studies and is therefore lowly because I don't know Bart or whatever, because I understand how the church works in the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> it just, it doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, why are we all being mean spirited when like people can see this? Like we're in public, you know? Because they're all, they're, they're, they're doing the, the Christian thing of like, they think they're doing one thing, but they're just doing a completely different thing, right? This is what the church, like, especially like some of the evangelicals have done. It's like, we're going to really connect with society now and we're going to put out this whatever music or it's like, no. And, and I think that they're doing the same thing on Twitter. They think like, I'm going to make this stand about communion and people are going to be like, oh my gosh, that priest in Upper Wisconsin or wherever that person was from, uh, like, <laughs> well, let's changed. not get specific. Why? I don't even remember where they were from. I just, I'm, just, I'm just assuming they're not in Minnesota or else we're going to this whole thing. Uh, <laughs> but, but I think that that's like, it's like this thing of like, I'm going to get this spicy hot take about something that's already church canon. And it's like, it, it it's just so disconnected. Like, I just, I don't have a lot of patience for the priests on there. They have a theology that is so disconnected from the parish or just from real life for anybody. And this is, this is a, a comes up all the time, this sort of stuff. This is also the tweet where, Carrie, you and I, uh, uh, actually, like, we had met before, but this is where we, when I first, I think, texted you, you'd be like, this person is an idiot. So shout out to a friendship. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that maybe those people think, maybe those people see themselves as being on Twitter only to connect with this sliver of uh, other priestly people who are interested in liturgical details and don't realize that what they're presenting on Twitter really is like being watched by a wider community, yeah. um, which is a good thing for all of us to keep in mind yes. on our social media platforms. I also feel and like... you know, oh, log in my own eye, I did, like, we're releasing a podcast where I call a priest a bitch, so... <laughs> we're, let's, just, let's just not go over it again. The wider world is watching, Carrie. <laughs> this was such a safe podcast. This was the one I was going to lift up to the bishop or whoever needs to listen to it. Oh, gosh. Oh, also, man. I just want to call out that we've uh, officially marginalized Isaac from this podcast with all of our Episcopalian and Anglican talk, so okay. apologies. Well, open, open table is an issue in the Methodist Church, too, I think. I mean, I don't know what the Book of Discipline says, but 
I'm sure that people talk about it. And there's some Methodists who engage in weird Anglican oh, Twitter. So and some yeah, and some Methodists that have some stupidly hot takes on Twitter. So it all connects. We're just here supporting my homies, vibing as we're called to do. <laughs> so there's no big sad. I, mean, I, I don't have any. I mean, I I don't have any disagreements with what's going on. I I just wish that people on weird Anglican Twitter would like take themselves a little less seriously and, and realize that it's funny to junk to dunk on theology posts. And I would I just shout out to the sex Lutheran who at least <laughs> has like a good sense of humor about their tweets. <laughs> I'm just I will say that. Anyway, but my big issue with weird Anglican Anglican Twitter is um why are they also obsessed with bringing back Puritanism uh, and Enlightenment theology and, and liturgies and practices that gave us some of the shittiest church formation and, and problems in the whole history of the tradition? So, like, when I see you out there getting, you know, all awesome and like riled up about 18th century practices, I I get really <laughs> concerned. I say that as a Methodist, you know, where but. The entire thing is based on John Wesley, but I, I guess I have, uh, I don't know, I've got some like deep qualms about that. But Neo-Puritanism, please don't bring it back. Please stop. If you're out there trying to do that, please stop. Or like multi-tweet threads about the 1700 prayer book and how we should bring that back and how that's the only place I connect with God. It's like, stop, unfollow, block, whatever. Anyway, I think <laughs> Carrie's point was originally that... <laughs> Yes. Not that people shouldn't tweet about their weird their weird theological preferences, but that people shouldn't uh, get really riled up in response to someone else's tweets about theology, unless you're mutuals who have a relationship. That, and also if it's clearly a joke, maybe chill out. Um, <laughs> yeah. And also in closing of the fight corner, we go. you're not my dad. Don't take that tone with me <laughs> and never contact me again random priest on Twitter. And it is, me. I mean, I do think this is an issue that I run into fairly often with men of all ilks is that I, like they really, they dad me a lot. This happened when I worked in retail. This happens in the church all the time. <laughs> like, and I'm like, I have a good dad. Like <laughs> I have very, very little trauma. And if I need him to change my tire, I will call him like, please leave. I just, ugh, Carrie, I can't This is it. when we Enneagram fives need to move towards our eight space and just tell them they're not our dads. That's all. Is that the first Enneagram drop on the pod? We haven't really gotten into it. I think it might be. Yeah. I think it might be. Since coming to Divinity School, so if you guys are unfamiliar, Enneagram fives, when they're integrating, they move to eight. Eight is the challenger. Since coming to Div School, I've like lived in eight. I challenge people left and right all the time. You should have read the course evaluations I turned in this week. They were brutal and efficient. <laughs> I saw your tweet about it and I was like, someone is getting ripped a new one. <laughs> so it's pretty fun. Yeah. But maybe that's because there are so many of those people here who are being condescending men. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. A lot of Enneagram aids in Div School. <laughs> my hot take i've never met a nice eight i've never met a single enneagram eight who was a, like a kind person <laughs> and it makes me worry about like the fundamental like you had melissa on the podcast just a few weeks ago right Karen oh is she an eight? oh yeah she i wasn't eight. on that one yeah, Karen. Karen wasn't on that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah 
Maybe I, I've also, so I've never met Melissa. Perhaps she's kind. She seemed kind in the hour I listened to. <laughs> We're not Twitter mutuals, so well, there she, you can go. Call, she can call me out. Uh, she can be your dad. In real, <laughs> like any uh. woman who wants to be my daddy, welcome. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, oh, ladies. <laughs> no. Um, what was I going to say? Sorry, I was going to. Uh, I was going to no say idea. something about Enneagram Eights. Oh, I just think in my real life, most Enneagram Eights, it seems like the identification is the cover for being a jerk to everyone you know, mm. and it makes me worry about uh, like the fundamental mechanism of the Enneagram. <laughs> Like is the like why are we also into this? You know, for the things that we love that are bad about ourselves. Yeah, like that I'm a seven. Means, and sure. it's like a seven is just like that free reign to be like, oh, I can just do this now. I don't have to do that anymore. Podcast, I'm done with podcasts. I'm gonna start, <laughs> I'm gonna start doing radio plays. Whatever that that's like the seven vibe right there. My hottest take of the pod might be that the enneagram is the horoscope for evangelical Christians. Oh, yeah. Like. We need, we need a new Venn diagram. We need a new Venn yeah. diagram for that one. Carrie. You know, it was uh, started by the Desert Fathers, I've heard. <laughs> I've had to go, at listen, I am Episcopalian. I've had to go to two separate conferences on the Enneagram where they cite that. That might be the best joke of the podcast, Isaac. Well done. Well done. <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm like just peering out on the court, I get to, you know, pick. My moments <laughs> strategically. That was good. My mom will be so excited. Oh, yeah. I've talked so much on this pod. I know. Every my feedback that I receive from my mom for every episode is I think Carrie should talk more. Sorry for talking about agree the with that. Carrie's mom. No. Sorry for liking oh. good good sports. As the other fan of your podcast, I agree with Carrie's mom. Wait a minute, the Enjoy other me. fan. There's more than come on. <laughs> Some the subtle All of shade. Our moms like the pod. Okay. Yeah, my mom. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if my mom likes the pod. Actually, <laughs> well, let's put that out there. Uh, I also like Carrie's mom because uh, one of Carrie's mom's best comments was, "I like that other guy talks so much." And she's like, "Brian, no, 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 the other guy." That was one of my favorite comments ever. I, I want her to five stars and put that out there. <laughs> I'm not taking the bay, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to get us out. We're just trying to trying to land the plane here. Well, um, I can do that for you. Uh, where goodness still grows, reclaiming virtue in an age of hypocrisy, can be found wherever books are sold. You can also learn more at my website www.amypeterson.net. There's a free discussion guide you can download if you want to do a small group at your church based on this book. Um, also, if you sign up for my email newsletter, which comes out maybe three times a year, if I feel like it, you will get a free chapter of this book emailed to you. And it's maybe my favorite chapter, which we didn't discuss at all, kindness. So you should do that. You can also follow me on Twitter at Amy L. Peterson and on Instagram at Amy Pete. And oh, before go. we go, I think I also want to point out, we talked a lot about uh, like how this book can like challenge evangelicals, but it is also a book that will challenge you. The thing that challenged me most was definitely the chapter on modesty because I love mm -hmm. cowboy boots and buying them. <laughs> and it's like, how many pairs of cowboy have, boots do you need? You'll have to read the chapter to understand what makes cowboy boots modest or immodest. Yeah. yeah. So there's a quick plug. Yeah. A little teaser. <laughs> a little treat teaser. Uh, yeah. I have to delete my OnlyFans page. <laughs> no, no, just... And let's just be done. Let's just be done right now, please. 
<laughs> well, take us out then, Brian. You know the words. I don't remember the words. That's your job. Do it. I'm going to mess it up and then I'm going to get dunked on for it. Well, that will happen to all of us because we live in an apocalyptic age and all takes will be revealed until we get canceled. See you next time, y'all. Bye. <laughs>